This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right, welcome back, everyone, for episode 10. We're really excited to be back. It's been a few weeks. We have a bunch of guests with us today, and we'll let Dr. Abrams say hey first. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We're we're happy to be back here. Um, This is our post-Halloween episode. I don't know if that's a theme. We'll find out in a minute. (laughs) But uh, really, it's wonderful to to be sitting back around this table with with some really great people. Hey, everyone. I'm back. I'm Brenda. Um, I was working nights on Halloween, so that was exciting (laughs) and sad. A lot of kids weren't happy to be there, but they were cute and dressed up. And hello, my name is Jordan. I am an M4 student and I'm going into beads, theatrics. And I, for Halloween, was in the Smoky Mountains camping this past weekend. Oh, wonderful. It was a little bit spooky because it was <laughs> raining the entire time, but it was a blast and got to see some beautiful fall foliage. I'm Gaia. I'm also a fourth year. I'm going into psychiatry. Uh, For Halloween, my husband and I entered our dog in a Halloween uh, costume contest, and he was citizen canine. (laughs) Bowler hat and a suit and a little sled that said Rosebud. He did not win. We were very upset about it. (laughs) No, it's tragic. It was tragic. Hi, everyone. I'm Kate. I am also a fourth year going into internal medicine. For Halloween, I did multiple things, uh, one of which was go with Gaia to her little sister's acapella concert. It's her senior year, and she's president mm-hmm. president of our nice. group. Um, I dressed up as Pikachu because my last name is Chu, and I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> and fun fact, we're roommates. What did you do for Halloween, Dr. Abrams? I, you know, I actually gave out candy on Halloween, and I am at the phase of my life where, I mean, you, you go through the stages of Halloween, I think. So when you're a kid, you love Halloween up to a certain age. And then eventually you don't want to have anything to do with Halloween. <laughs> when you have kids, you get back into Halloween. And so, you, you know, you dress up, your kids dress up and you go out and do Halloween. And then when your kids grow up, you try to avoid Halloween for a couple of years, like you turn off the lights or go out, but then you get back into it again because you want to see everybody in the neighborhood. So I stood at the door and I handed out candy. Do you give out full-size candy bars? That was also Very important. <laughs> How big is full size? So the answer is, I, I mean, we must have spent fifty to hundred dollars on candy this year. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of candy that was given out. And, uh, I mean, I mean the really big bars, like, so just like your normal Kit Kat bar, you know, like yeah, we give out the normal. Oh, so, well, that's full size. That's, that's full, full size. size. Not the giant. Not the giant ones. ones. Yeah. I went to my sister. She just got a house in the suburbs and she invited us for Halloween and she wanted to make a point to give out full size candy bars. So she bought, there were 10 different kinds and she like laid them out on the table for the kids to choose which one. And it was funny when they'd come up in a group, a lot of the kids would fight. (laughs) No, I want this one. But the new most popular house in the neighborhood. Yeah. That's what you gotta do. Don't you remember when you were a kid planning out which houses got full size candy bars? I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're doing something new here today. We're gonna be presenting our first Peds case. Woo-hoo. And uh, what a perfect time to do it. We have Brenda here and then Jordan's <laughs> going into Peds. And like Dr. Abrams said, everyone after two years old is basically an adult anyway. So I think we'll all be able to help out. So if the patient's under two, we're out. (laughs) (laughs) Comic relief in the background. All right, let's get things started. Right, so not (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) so uh, this is a 55 day old male born at term, a C section with no significant past medical history, presents with decreased PO intake, decreased wet and dirty diapers, and weakness. What are your all of you thinking? 
Yeah, so this is definitely a less than two-year-old, less than two-month-old, which kind of already spurs some things in my mind in terms of really having to be careful of potential risk factors. Immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of like any infectious etiology. Um, So if this kiddo is sick with respiratory illness, anything that could be causing fever, for example, so sepsis, UTI, meningitis, all those things would be particularly concerning in a 55-day-old and could cause these symptoms, potentially. Other thoughts? Keep going. So I have have (laughs) another few thoughts. So also thinking about um, like metabolic causes, particularly with the weakness. Like I'm curious what exactly this weakness is, but if we're seeing like hypotonia, this could be concerning for like uh, congenital hypothyroidism. We're seeing, yeah, weakness also suggestive of potentially other like weird metabolic yeah, disorders. Of uh-huh. What's the one where it's like, oh, that the P? Uh, I'll, I'll come, it'll come to me later. Tell us I don't think so. I don't that, but maybe. But yeah, this is a good point. Like Prater Willie and Engelman syndrome both can present with um, hypotonia, like newborn hypotonia. There's a lot of genetic. Uh, disorders, I believe, that could also cause this uh, weakness in particular. I believe Down syndrome also can mm-hmm. cause weakness. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what the time timeline is for that, whether it has an at birth or two months. Mm-hmm. If this were an adult, what kind of things would you add? Botulism. <laughs> so infection. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like infection is a really big one. You decrease people can take. Gapping could be UTI. Weaknesses. I haven't been on the floors in uh, like three months, so a long time since I thought about medicine. Thinking about like neurologic causes, so things like, well, so an initial thing that could come to mind is like if this could actually be a situation of like non-accidental trauma, chicken baby chicken syndrome, babies. so causing like a brain hemorrhage, stroke for any other reason. Um, yeah, I would also love to know um, from the parents' point of view, like how they're feeding the the child, you know, a lot of times when we have decreased PO intake, it, it's something about how um, we're administering or the parent is administering food for the child. Also, just like time course of how long this has been going mm-hmm. on for. Mm-hmm. And then I think this is a lot less likely in a fifty five day old, but any kind of like accidental non accidental ingestion as well. Clearly, a fifty five day old isn't like reaching for Crawling bottles and putting them in their mouth right yet, but there could have been a situation that could have resulted with. Um, yeah, feeding medications accidentally or something like that. Um, and I agree with botulism. Botulism is definitely a good potential cause of these symptoms in a 55 day old. I think just honey. And I think just from the 55 day old, like actually knowing our uh, milestones, developmental milestones, so we can say, you know, this baby wasn't crawling around and picked something up is, is clinically significant. Yeah. Yeah. I think you all nailed it, especially with the time course of if it's a more acute presentation of poor PO intake versus something that's been present from birth. Um, you list a lot of those causes with genetic stuff, um, hypothyroid, downs. Um, so I think you have a pretty good differential. What would you think, just kind of round out differential, if baby was having poor feeding from birth, was having fatigue with feeding, what would you add to your differential? Like a congenital heart defect would also be something that you want to be thinking about. Those are like big things that I had on, in mind for poor PO intake. Do you want to add anything? No. Kevin? Let's, let's yeah, I was thinking about that mist Ooh. mnemonic yeah, yeah. and saying, wait, does that apply to peds where I go metabolic, infectious, 
structural, toxic. And then I just, because it's kids, I have to toss in G because genetic stuff just seems to pop up in kids, obviously more so than, than it pops up in adults. And I feel like particularly in this case, patients under two months old, got to keep genetic stuff yes. on, in our mind. So patient was reaching developmental milestones, was able to hold his head up, smile, follow things with his eyes up until the day before presentation when he could no longer hold his head up and was described as floppy. Now that you have more of the time for us, what are you thinking? Autism sounds better now. <laughs> floppy baby syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Just the acute onset of, of uh, muscle weakness, specifically pointing out noticing it in the head and neck um, for botulism. We think about a descending paralysis. So definitely something we would want to talk to the parents about if there was a possibility for exposure. On the other hand, something that we didn't talk about initially, but just knowing this as well. Also, I feel like it's helpful in making it less suggestive of something like SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, where we would have been concerned about that being present more from birth without these uh, milestones and then later lots of milestones. What else can you see, as you mentioned, regression of development with SME? So what other things would be on your differential with regression in this presentation? So if this was a girl, for example, it could be rat syndrome. It doesn't you know, see it in boys because it kills boys in utero, basically. But um, so not probably not what's happening here, but definitely something to keep in mind if, you, if this was a 55-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. I like what Jordan was doing. Gaia pointed out the obvious or we're attached to buzzwords, right? And floppy <laughs> makes us all think botulism, but Jordan was able to use the rest of the picture to kind of eliminate some of the things we already talked about. Are you still thinking infectious at all at this point? I would say definitely. I think that that's another cause of an acute, a more acute onset presentation of these types of symptoms of weakness. So I'm still concerned about, we don't, we don't have vitals yet. And so that's going to be an important piece of information, but I'm still concerned about meningitis, sepsis, and those being major things that we'd want to kind of rule out quickly. And I, I think still in, in infants, infection can present so almost vaguely and broadly, uh, anything could be a symptom of an infection, mm-hmm. especially if it's something systemic um, or maybe just seems different from normal. So definitely don't want to rule that out yet. And I still think we could um, consider structural things as in like acute hemorrhage, um, mm-hmm. still in our differential, maybe not congenital defects, um, given given the time course, but definitely still acute trauma was possible. Mm-hmm. And toxic still being a possibility yeah. as well. And then I think just to make, just so I don't let you guys throw out your anchor too early, how would you expand on a differential for floppy baby? So when I hear the word floppy, I think that the more kind of medical term would be like hypotonia. We have, I think, talked about Quite a few of the potential things with like neurologic causes, um, genetic causes. I was thinking about this a little bit more as uh, I just had more time to brainstorm that um, in terms of when you get to like these, this broad category of like metabolic causes that could be uh, genetic, may or may not be captured on like the neonatal screen would include things like peroxisome disorders and like lysosome disorders. There's a lot of disorders that fit into those types of things, but it can definitely cause hypotonia. There, you have your like um, Frappe disease, you have your like Zellweger syndrome, um, and then like, non-metabolic genetic causes like Rett syndrome um, and congenital hypothyroidism. Yes, I also think Prader-Willi is actually what I was thinking of. Yes. Which causes hypotonia too. Absolutely. Down syndrome and any of the other like trisomies um, that can be compatible with life.
I think also like electrolyte disturbances uh, should be on the differential as well. Again, kind of going back to feeding, um, you know, if there's incorrect dilution with formula, for example, that that could be contributing to, to electrolyte disturbances. And also like potentially some vitamin deficiencies that mm-hmm. what you said brings that to mind too. Pretty good. Right. So on presentation to the ED, he was found to be grunting and hypoxic to 82% SpO2, required initiation of BiPAP, and subsequently required intubation about a week later. I don't know how this changes it for us that much. Like, It's definitely concerning. Yeah, yeah this is bad. He was having respiratory distress that now progressed to acute respiratory failure. Hypoxia, I think brings to mind a lot of questions about like, okay, why are they having hypoxia? Is it due to this respiratory distress potentially due to like this weakness, this like inability to support um, the head is suggestive that maybe they're having like muscle weakness uh, also of like their accessory respiratory muscles. And is that what led? Was it kind of this like physical um, type of ventilation? Yeah, yeah. Inability to maintain the respiratory effort that led to this. Or, you know, hypoxia also brings to mind, okay, maybe there's like pulmonary pathology, maybe there's cardiac pathology. Um, so kind of bringing those and potential like infectious causes that could be impacting the lungs or also like congenital causes that could actually cardiac physiology, uh, putting this infant at risk for hypoxia as well, um, a little bit higher. But I think based on what we already know about like this developing weakness, that's kind of like still top of my mind about maybe what caused this uh, respiratory failure was because due to the like muscle weakness that this infant was experiencing due to some so since tempo is everything, yeah. I, I think you get a picture of what the tempo of this illness is now. And it's, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You get a picture of what the tempo is and does the tempo of this illness change your thinking? I, mean, it's, I feel like it's happening so quickly. Like it's much more acute than I would expect from something that's like necessarily like a genetic or like a genetic cause. I feel like that we'd see kind of more slowly progress. This is like within a week, he's hypoxic to 82 and can't breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, he needs to be intubated. And we don't know how long he had been like that hypoxic for. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, do, though, do think it's a little bit interesting that it did take a week for him to require intubation. So he, with, on BiPAP, he was still making res- some respiratory effort and he theoretically didn't lose all of his ability to use his muscles to help him out. Yeah, I'm with you. It's almost more subacute yeah. than acute because he lasted for a week before right. intubation. Yeah. And it continued to get worse yeah. in the hospital versus yeah. something like you would think an acute ingestion would be getting better as it left the system. Great point. And if we, like we mentioned electrolyte disturbances and various metabolic things, so if it was like something simple like hypoglycemia, we would assume they would have checked and he would have responded appropriately, right? So I think factoring in, like now we have a week's worth of information, even though it's not much information, you're able to say with confidence that we can put those in the back of our mind and start thinking about some of the more subacute things in front. Sounds like your leading differential right now is respiratory distress secondary to muscle weakness. You had mentioned botulism is one of those causes. Are there other things that could cause like muscle weakness and respiratory distress like this? The Guillain-Barre can cause muscle weakness and respiratory distress, absolutely. What would the picture for that look like? It's typically an ascending weakness, so it starts with your feet and goes up, and this is starting with the head and going down. I don't know if it's different for kids, but, like, <laughs> I can only assume it's probably the same. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to review really quick BiPAP and what specifically that, just reviewing oh, what yeah. that's providing for the, the uh, infant. I think that'll also change. 
so what we think is going on. BiPAP, my understanding, is basically like you have your like the bottom level of pressure, that's like your continuous pressure, right? So that's just providing constant pressure to help open up the lungs. And then they also need on top of that when they inspire extra pressure over like your it's peak, right? It's non-invasive ventilation. Yeah. Think of it that way. So it's 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 a pressure-based non-invasive ventilation. That they are they have to still initiate. Right. It blows air into yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> just at different levels of pressure. Thinking about other things on the differential for subacute progressive muscle paralysis. I wish I remembered it's, more. Is one but Adam? Is that something? One. Is this like, it's like A-D-E-M. Is that, yeah. Is that, that one? Yeah. I don't remember what it stands for. I did just read a New York Times article about a basketball player who actually had that and like was like basically paralyzed for a little bit. I also wish I remember what it stood for. Acute demyelinating something. Actually, no. <laughs> That's my guess. But extrapolate this patient <laughs> to an adult again. So, like, what causes of respiratory muscle failure can present, or can an adult present with? Something like myasthenia gravis is mm-hmm. one. That's the first one that comes to mind. Lambert-Eaton syndrome mm-hmm. being another, like, an acute, an acute flaccid paralysis can come from something like polio. Can also, actually, come from a lot of different viruses. I think enteroviruses, like, predominantly. So, whether that's you're having like a meningoencephalitis or it's kind of like a post-viral syndrome. That's another thing that I know of can cause this in kiddos. So I'm not a pediatrician, so I'm looking to you, Brenda. So far, I've heard this unbelievable sort of differential diagnosis for this case. <laughs> I'm like, there's like 10 things. I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, Adam, what's that? Apparently <laughs> acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. There you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I think you right. Yeah. But I'm with you. I'm thinking of the adult analogs and myasthenia comes to mind. And there has to be a kid's myasthenia yeah, syndrome. Neonatal, like if the mother sure. had. If the mother had it and passed the antibodies, I would assume you passed the antibodies. We haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. And then you got the Guillain-Barre. And, the, and the, the differential diagnosis is probably fairly limited for an acute process like this. Yeah. Other ones that came to mind for me were like a transverse myelitis picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... It would have to be an adult, but ALS, it's like another, it's like the end result of ALS is that they lose their ability to breathe on their own. Mm-hmm. I think you ladies have done a great yeah. job so far, just broadly covering everything this could possibly be. So we have a physical exam now. Physical exam vitals were blood pressure of 95 over 50, heart rate 180, temperature of 97.9, respiratory rate of 20 on SIMV, pressure control, mechanical ventilation, Anterior fontanelle was open, soft, and flat. Lungs were clear to auscultation. Heart rate was tachycardic, um, regular rhythm with no murmurs. Abdomen was soft, non-distended, non-tender. And then the neuro exam, which we all want. Um, <laughs> patient was noted to have a head lag, poor truncal tone with no anti-gravity resistance, poor anal tone. And then with pupillary fatigability test, um, there was decreased pupillary response to light as time went on. All right, interesting. I need to talk about what the findings kind of suggest, just like physiologically even. In terms of like, yeah, significant, positive significant findings. Yeah. Um, so, well, first of all, I was just going to say that this uh, kiddo is a bit tachycardic, but otherwise seems to be stable on mechanical ventilation. So that's reassuring to me. As for neuro exam, do you want to take that on? I was just going to comment on the rest of the exam, that anterior fontanelle is open, soft, and flat, um, really not 
giving us the buzzwords for things like dehydration or increased intracranial pressure, lungs were clear to auscultation. So not really painting us a um, pneumonia picture. Harvest tachycardic, but regular than no murmurs. You know, our human ears are pretty bad at hearing murmurs, but um, <laughs> it's, it doesn't make especially it. Especially the heart rate of 180. Yeah, <laughs> especially in the heart rate of 180. Um, so that doesn't really help us uh, kind of rule out cardiac etiology necessarily. Um, abdominal soft, non-descend, non-tender. Again, reassuring exam finding, although that was not very high on our, our yeah, it was not very high on our differential to begin with, um, but still important to note nonetheless. And then for the neuro exam, I mean, you can just see that this baby has very little tone, if any, um, just in general, pretty much all the muscles are lack, lack tone. Um, what's interesting is the pupillary fatigability, uh, you get decreased pupillary response to light as time went on, which kind of reminds me of when you test for like myasthenia, for example, where you get fatigability, the more you stimulate the muscle, the less less it contracts and reacts to the stimulation. So that seems kind of similar. I don't know if it's an equivalent test, but interesting. And I think, again, how um, broad the hypotonia is, you know, including that the anal tone was poor, it, it seems less like a, it's not a focal neurodeficit. You know, whether that, I guess us deciding is that from a spinal cord, brain involvement, or something, you know, metabolic overall, um, those are the things that come to mind. I feel like if we're going to pick between what you said, I think the, the more global like metabolic stuff makes more sense just because in order for him to have some sort of brain thing going on that would cause all of these symptoms, like that would be like most of his brain, right? Good point. Like, same with the spinal cord. To localize yeah, the you can't localize. Same with the spinal cord yeah, too. Yeah, the level of the spinal cord. Really. Which leads me away from like a specific neuro cause to what's happening. Unless it's something like yandere, in which case like also neuro, but... Yeah. And then the temperature, going back to that he's febrile, you know, we were thinking a lot about infectious etiology and while well, fever is not required for that, you know, it just kind of puts a lower on a differential or things like encephalitis and meningitis, I would expect typically for a patient to be febrile. Mm-hmm. Also, it's, it's nice to see that it's, that this infant is normothermic. So also not having like a low temperature and that could be concerning for something like sepsis in an infant. So it sounds like with the vital signs and the fact that the baby's afebrile infection is less likely on your list, but with this neuro exam, I know earlier, Jordan, you mentioned with the hypotonic baby, like kind of if they're in sepsis and listless, that it's hard to differentiate. Does this neuro exam point you more towards uh, hypotonia secondary to like act true muscle weakness, or do you think this could still be sepsis putting the vital signs aside? Yeah. I think that there's true muscle weakness going on here, given this neuro exam. It's not just listlessness. You guys all said some really great things, and particularly Jordan said to not, we can't localize the lesion, and Gaia took like a more, you know, broad look at the problem at hand by saying, this is something, we're not able to connect these symptoms with just one thing. And that definitely helps narrow your differential. And it sounds like it's already leading you down a particular path. And let's see what the next alpha brings. So the patient is up to date on immunizations. He drinks Infamil formula milk and has not had any solid foods or canned foods. He has not eaten any honey and no one in the family has eaten honey recently. Mm-hmm. And he has not been near any construction sites and no one in the family has been gardening around him. Okay, so not botulism. Making botulism lower on. Yeah. <laughs> this is a nice exposure history, uh, which is important to have, when we're, especially when we're considering those like infectious etiologies, especially with like 
botulism on our differential. We're looking for things that could introduce spores into this baby's environment um, that could possibly have been ingested. So yeah, the honey, um, the no honey, the no canned foods, the no any food other than formula. Um, and then even like the gardening and construction sites, I think is also kind of trying to reassure us that there aren't spores that this infant could have consumed. I think that a point Gaia brought up earlier though about the, the formula um, mixing could still be a question. Don't know if this is a formula powder, if there could have been uh, water that was mixed into with the formula powder that could have had something in it. If the patient wasn't up to date on immunizations, would that change anything? Just as a reminder, because I definitely had to look this up, like, which immunizations <laughs> they get by two months. Um, usually they're, by then they would have done happy DTAP, um, Haemophilus influenza type B, polio, pneumococcal, and rotavirus. So assuming mm-hmm. that he got the two-month vaccination, okay. so that's what he would have gotten. Sure. I mean, we initially were talking about polio, reassuring that it's been vaccinated. Um, I think also DTAP also is important and that those are the two that come to mind. Yeah, tetanus would usually present with like a spastic paralysis, but reassuring that the baby's been vaccinated against tetanus and also been vaccinated against some of the common concerning causes of sepsis, um, like uh, pneumonia and uh, H. flu. So that's reassuring as well. You don't think this infant is particularly an increased risk for those infectious etiologies. So I'm asking you a question, or maybe you guys a question, because the fact that the, the fact that the infant is non-breastfeeding means we did talk about neonatal myasthenia, which would be a breastfeeding disease, right? And and so I don't know if there's other antibodies that could pass from mother to baby that could cause a syndrome like this, but it does baby rule out neonatal myasthenia. Absolutely. And you usually tend to see it like earlier in infancy, not like 55 days. So I would agree that it doesn't rule. Although maybe she breastfed for the first month and then she stopped. Yeah. And this is right after she's, this is shortly after she stopped. And I'm not sure, but what's coming to mind, like with particular congenital myasthenia is it's an IgG antibody that is able to cross the placenta. Whereas in breast milk, it's typically IgA. So you wouldn't see that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know, but all good points to consider. Dr. Evans, what would, what would you do next? What would I do? Yeah. I would call the pediatric <laughs> neurologist and say, tell me what this, tell me. I would be thinking about this as what's happening at the neuromuscular junction. Yeah. Because I do think that that fatigability, it, it's not something that I see pointed out much, but it maybe it is a, a big clue to this. And, uh, you know, so I think, is it nerve? Is it, you know, which side is it on? Is it inside the junction? And, you know, when you think about, myasthenia and, and Lambert Eaton, you think about why they, you know, one gets better and one doesn't get better. It does help you place that. Mm-hmm. And so this is almost kind of the, the opposite here. And, and I do think it probably place, it will tell you exactly where this is happening, which may, if you focus your differential diagnosis. I just, that's what I say, I'd call the, I'd call the, either the ophthalmologist or the neurologist <laughs> and say, what is this? He's localizing the lesion. <laughs> it's a great point. I think it. I think everything does point towards like the neuromuscular junction at this point. So even though it's diffuse, we're still able to localize. See, that was a one physical exam piece that just, I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. Unless you tell me that happens in kids all the time and this is what you put in kids. First time I saw it too. <laughs> all right, so we have some data for you. So RPP was rhinoenteropositive as it is for all the kids on the floor right now. <laughs> um, blood cultures and urine cultures showed no growth. Lumbar puncture was fairly unremarkable. CSF had one white blood cell, zero white red blood cells. 
protein of 35, glucose of 57, and no albuminocytological dissociation and no growth on CSF cultures. Chest x-ray revealed minimal patchy opacification in the middle lower lobe, likely representative of atelectasis. And an MRI, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar was unremarkable with no cord signal abnormality and no enhancement along the quadra equina nerve roots. So going through the data, um, again, the RPP being positive doesn't give us a whole lot of information. It's so common in the pediatric population. Um, the blood cultures and urine cultures having no growth is reassuring, again, kind of pointing away from an infectious etiology of like general sepsis. Lumbar puncture being unremarkable. You know, if, if this was something like a viral meningitis or encephalitis, we would, we would expect to see um, CSF findings of glucocytosis or uh, increased protein, low glucose, things like that. Similarly, also, I believe with Guillain-Barre, you also probably see the albuminocytological dissociation, which we don't see here. So that kind of puts that lower down on what's going on. The chest uh, x-ray atelectasis to me, isn't super informative. Um, this patient has been intubated for a while, so I almost kind of expect to see some atelectasis. Um, and then the MRI is, again, reassuring that this, there's not a um, spinal cord pathology, which at this point was pretty low on our uh, differential, given that we we're thinking normal neuromuscular junction um, mm-hmm. is, is the level of our pathology. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And just kind of highlighting that the lumbar puncture findings and then the MRI findings are really reassuring against like a, an acute like meningoencephalitis happening. However, I would still just kind of comment on the RPP being rhino and tarot positive. <laughs> um, I think that having some of this data makes us less concerned for like an enterovirus causing an acute encephalitis picture. However, I don't know how a um, like acute flaccid paralysis that's kind of like a post-viral syndrome might look on an MRI. I don't know if you would expect to see enhancement or not. Um, so that is something like seeing that rhino entero positive, especially with knowing that like enteroviruses can cause this kind of a syndrome. And I read something mind. recently about it. It's a polio-like enterovirus that it's not polio, but it, it, yeah. it I don't know where I, I think it's called non-polio. Enterovirus. <laughs> okay, so and I only know like for reviewing for this. So. <laughs> but, 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 but has, yeah. has a, a polio like syndrome. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And that was why they got the MRI that enterovirus might cause like a acute flaccid myelitis, mm-hmm. but you would expect some cord enhancement okay. on MRI. But okay. great, great thought, because that's what everyone else was thinking. Yeah, well. it's like kind of exciting that the rhino and tarot was positive, and then you realize, no, everyone's rhino and positive. <laughs> do one of you want to do an assessment, a statement, before we go to the final piece of information? I can give it a stab. <laughs> We have a previously healthy 55-day-old infant who presented with progressive, diffuse muscle weakness resulting in chronic hypoxic respiratory failure, currently with stable vital signs on invasive ventilation, um, who is rhinoenterovirus positive, but otherwise with negative, uh, pan culture negative, and uh, MRI with no significant concerning findings. That was fantastic. Pretty good. <laughs> what are the next steps, you think? What would you want to do next? Okay, so thinking about like neuro, how, how do we assess the neuromuscular junction, which I think Dr. Ravens brought up a really good point. I'm honestly forgetting the name of this study, like an electromyogram. Yeah, yeah. Like the nerve. Is it just nerve stimulation? You think so? Nerve conduction studies. Nerve conduction studies, mm-hmm. thank you. So that might be something I would consider. And then I don't know. I am a little bit curious about whether there could be 
I mean, like autoantibodies that we're looking for. <laughs> there are just a general panel. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> An autoantibody panel. Yeah, love it. Kids. <laughs> I, I mean, for kids. <laughs> they have those? You send them out to me and they come back in like seven months. <laughs> some sort of autoantibody. Some sort of autoantibody. <laughs> For kids, specifically. <laughs> you earlier you were concerned about botulism. It looks like there's no exposure mm-hmm. history. Is that something you would want? Would still want to keep on your differential? Would you test for that in any way? Yeah, I'm gonna keep it on my differential. Absolutely. Would you serum botulism antibody <laughs> <laughs> That's how the kids feel. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know botulism, to be honest. So you just look for the toxin in the, the oh, stool sample. Easy. Yeah, yeah we could, that's so we easy. should definitely look for that. Absolutely. <laughs> so two stool samples were sent to test for toxin. First aliquot. That's the best anyone's ever done. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked. I just scared. <laughs> um, yeah, so both stool samples were confirmed positive for botulism toxin A. Spoiler alert. How did this baby get exposed to botulism? But I think it's really important to note that, like, the information that we gather from the history taking from the parents is not always we still would like to send confirmatory tests mm-hmm. especially for things that are you know life-threatening like mm-hmm. like botulism and low risk low cost the other thing is Jordan is you're totally right you don't you don't know where the water comes from you don't know any of that I mean you just don't know mm-hmm. yeah it's not necessarily <laughs> that we're concerned that the parents didn't have accurate information to provide but we don't know like yeah. we don't know yeah, every possible water. place that botulism spores could come from so there's certainly yeah there's a way to to test and and sorry what what i meant to say is like the parents also may not know right. where this sure. exposure yeah. Yeah. if you say you know is there any possible way your child is exposed to poison or you know um something like that i don't think i gave right. my child poison exactly to kind of bring this even more full circle i was on id mm. and they brought in Dr. Worley, who's the PEDS ID specialist who normally doesn't come, it sounds like, to this conference to present this case. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And how they do it is they have, they do a few cases per conference and have a fellow that's assigned to be the discussant. So much like this, the case was presented to the fellow and they did not say the word botulism until the very last aliquot. <laughs> and you said it in the first. <laughs> they, I mean, they covered all kinds of crazy infectious things that I, we don't even, I don't even remember. But did they just rule out because the parents said that there was no exposure to honey or like? Probably was they've never seen a case. Did yeah. You, like, we were taught in like, you know, first and second year about botulism. You hear floppy baby and you think immediately botulism, which is I'm sure probably what yeah, triggered think, that for Gaia. It's more because recently took step two <laughs> i think that's absolutely right like because we're less removed from that we thought we were able to remember that association where that person is kind of further along in their training and mm-hmm. we don't ever see these cases right but I, I would like to give props to jordan for carrying <laughs> this team carrying this team and actually Should going be. by system and, and creating a broad differential and, and helping us out that was most of the work she's the true winner here do you have any like wrap up on this patient in particular? Do you know what has happened since? And yeah. What? So he got discharged about two, I saw him about a month ago, got discharged about a week ago and started showing improvement, was extubated successfully. So starting to take the PO intake. Um, so overall a good prognosis and we'll go through some teaching points, but just to kind of summarize the thought process and all this was happening. So Dr. Abrams, you mentioned like it's a very like small differential for acute hypotonic 
like infant. And so when we first saw this baby, our like top three things that we were thinking were acute flaccid myelitis, secondary to like a rhino and virus. Um, we also thought maybe Guillain-Barre, Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, just because initially the history was unclear in mom being able to tell us that it was initially the head lag. It was more a generalized weakness presentation that we were given. We wanted to consider GBS. Mom also had this association that these symptoms started the day after um, he got vaccinations. Um, and there are some reports of GBS following vaccinations, not very common. That was a reason we considered GBS. And then our third one, obviously, was botulism. Those were our big three differentials for... I have to ask the question, COVID in very young kids, because, you know, something unusual happens and we've got a new disease around there. Any, no idea. In terms of seeing like. So Kevin, could this be COVID? I mean, that would be my first, you know, say I've never seen this before. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I feel like anything should be COVID, especially with like in the kids that's presenting with like variable symptoms, right. like inflammatory, general inflammatory response. I have definitely heard of some cases of like an encephalitis type yeah. picture in kids. Yeah, you think that is that that's it. They went down the entire, you know, brain pathway. They went brain board and, right. and again, it, based, it does seem based on the physical exam that it, it, it just seems like such a clue what you described in the mm-hmm. in the in the pupillary exam that you're kind of done with it. And, mm-hmm. and you said this is where it is mm-hmm. if that exam finding is meaningful. Mm-hmm. So we called the California Health Department and they asked us to do the pupillary fatigability test. We had never heard about it before, so we did that. Um, and they had pretty high clinical suspicion um, based off of the entire physical exam. Do you start treating empirically at that point? Yes. So that's the big thing that if there's any clinical suspicion, you treat right away. The antitoxin baby bag gets shipped from California. So like they ship it overnight and then you send stool samples to California and then they'll confirm. <laughs> Um, but the kind of some, I know when we saw like the lack of exposure history, all are like, okay, well maybe not botulism, but a lot of botulism cases actually don't have an exposure history and they don't really know where it comes from. Um, there's some reports of like spores in the formula, like powdered formula. So the California health department also like tests the formula, like the parents mail any formula they have left over. Um, we haven't heard anything so far that that's where this baby got it from. That's where Dr. Worley kind of left it off that. They were most suspicious that it was something related to the formula or the water that they were mixing in it. So they wouldn't be able to tell with the water, but they were sending the formula to have California tested. And I guess the CDC was also getting involved. Except it must have come from the water because otherwise there'd be an outbreak. So so it has to be something very local about the water. Otherwise, we'd be reading the paper tomorrow and somebody would have described eight cases of, of botulism in kids. Um, the other interesting thing that I read is even though you can find the spores in formula, like powder, that more of the cases are seen with the breastfeeding babies, which is also mm-hmm. interesting. Right. Um, but essentially can't rule out um, based on exposure history. Um, so just some general. I have one more thing that you, you sparked my memory when you were saying GBS. The infectious disease docs were really focused on the maternal pregnancy history. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about like late onset ruby strep meningitis mm-hmm. uh, early on in their discussion they thought like this was the perfect time frame for that presentation and then the symptoms before data started coming back to say it wasn't likely a meningitis or infection but that was that you sparked my memory of that and that's a something we didn't really talk about is you know what was the mother's health leading up to birth right and just with that with the sepsis presentation when i was listening to other discussions about botulism that's part of the initial presentation it's 
her to distinguish between true weakness mm-hmm. and is this weakness from sepsis and mortal lissacity. Um, I think obviously like the pupillary fatigability test and the poor anal tone where we were able to clue into true muscle weakness, but in the initial presentation, that's part of the, um, it's hard to differentiate the two. So infantile botulism caused by inhalation of clostridium botulism spores, which is an anaerobic spore-forming gram-positive bacillus. Spores are found in soil, in honey, um, and the reason that babies less than 12 months are more susceptible to it is just their GI tract doesn't really have mature flora. They have less gastric acidity that would like normally neutralize these spores. Um, and then just like an overall more immature immune system, which allows for the spores to um, germinate and the toxin to be produced in the GI tract. And so sometimes the initial presentations actually with the GI symptoms, um, with like the, obviously the poor feedings of the weakness, but also like parents have nausea, um, constipation, um, so you can have GI symptoms. So the toxin prevents the release of acetylcholine by blocking the calcium channels at the presynaptic nerve terminals. Um, so the toxin causes a descending symmetric placid paralysis, which all of you clued in onto very early. <laughs> um, so you, if you have like bulbar palsies with that, and then again, like a lot of times the presenting symptoms are constipation, which the skin did have less dirty diapers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have poor feeding. Sometimes the mothers, if they're breastfeeding, will report that they have breast engorgement because the baby's not feeding well. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have like a weak cry, shallow breathing from the muscle, muscle weakness, um, and then the symptoms usually present in an acute to subacute fashion over several days. Um, and then notable physical exam findings include head lag, the respiratory depression. Um, apparently 50% of infantile botulism patients require an advanced airway at some point because of the progression. Um, you see the decreased anal tone, diminished deep tendon reflexes, and then muscle fatigability. Um, and you'll notice that with the self-reflex too, that if you have a self-reflex, self-reflex over time, that'll get weaker. Um, and then, like we talked about, the decision to treat um, botulism with baby big, which is the antitoxin, mm-hmm. is completely based on clinical presentation and shouldn't be delayed with confirmatory testing. And that's because the sooner you give it, the more, the faster the antitoxin can bind the toxin because it doesn't actually unbind the toxin once it's already bound to the terminal. So the sooner you do it, the more toxin you can bind and prevent that progression of respiratory distress. If you didn't initiate treatment, would this eventually just self-resolve? If you kept mechanically ventilating. Yeah, so it does self-resolve. Um, so I think with advancement with like mechanical ventilation, these kids still have a good prognosis. It's just a longer hospital course um, versus like before mechanical ventilation, then they would it would result in um, death. But with mechanical ventilation, they still do fine. Um, so the t- toxin actually reduces hospitalization. And so the average hospitalization, if without the antitoxin, is about 5.7 weeks. And then with the toxin is 2.3 weeks. Um, our kids stayed for longer and that's, I think the our kid didn't get it until like a week into hospitalization. And that was initially because the picture was kind of blurred with this rhino enteral, like was it a bronchiolitis? Um, it was getting, was stable on BiPAP for about a week. Um, and the hypotonia was also progressive where like we saw him with ID like one week into presentation where the hypotonia was very evident, but on initial presentation, that didn't seem like the chief complaint. Um, from what mom told the team and the hypotonia wasn't as evident on physical exam. So he got it later into his hospital course. But prognosis is pretty good. They generally have a full recovery within several months to a year. Um, we'll continue to reach milestones after um, they return to their baseline. 
And then the important thing is when you do the baby big, um, you avoid any live vaccines for six months. So then you just counsel parents on that and like communicate that to the pediatrician. So I'm trying to figure out why paralysis would have to would be descending. When, when it almost makes sense that it, there should be no specific pattern to it. And I don't know if, don't know the answer. I'm, I'm trying to think of a physiologic answer, except maybe there's more nerves. I think we're going to uh, consult the curious <laughs> clinic. <laughs> is there a reason GBS is ascending? Like, is it no, I was thinking the same thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of these saying, why in the world would that be? Yeah. But it, I mean, clearly it is like, from what we from what we hear here. Yeah, often mediated, you would think that it would be nonspecific. It's just, yeah, it's coming from the colon, that's all I can think yeah. of. <laughs> and like with GBS, I think we don't really entirely know what it is other than like the prevailing theories like molecular mimicry. Mm-hmm. But I don't also understand why that would lead to an asymptomatic yeah. kind of is, is an EMG diagnostic in these people also? Is there any, was you, you, did, you did talk about that before, and is there any reason to do an EMG on these kids to... For diagnosis, or maybe you're just going to tell me that the, the stool test is so good that why would you want to stick a kid with more needles than he's going to be stuck with? I think the stool test was confirmed right now. We discussed EMG before when we were still questioning whether it was really botulism. Um, but I think the stool, the stool toxin is pretty sensitive. How surprised were people when they got this back? <laughs> it was so surprising. Everyone, the, we were consulted in the hallway by a PICU attending. She was like, am I crazy? Like, it sounds like botulism. Dr. Worley was like, no, it sounds like botulism. But for a couple of days there, we were like, there's no way. It couldn't be. It was very interesting to watch it evolve. I do think it's a really interesting point that you brought up about the evolution because this infant came in with poor feeding, poor, like, decreased um, output and kind of this weakness that wasn't very clearly localized yet. Then probably came back rhino and tarot positive from the early yeah. side, I imagine. So oh, that would, like, yes, <laughs> they do a lot of RPPs pretty yeah. quickly. Um, and so the fact, and then was, you know, in respiratory distress, then stable on BiPAP for a week or some lunch. Yeah. 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 creates a picture of rhino and tarot bronchiolitis. And that's what we usually see, right? So yeah. I don't yeah. think anyone really questioned it for right that now. first yeah. week. So, so easy to kind of bias and think. Hmm. Maybe that weakness really is just kind of like yeah. fatigue in the setting of the viral illness or whatnot. What are the odds that you're going to actually see descending paralysis or be able to identify that in an infant yeah. who's not feeling well? Right. Um, so I think we're a little lucky in, in the vignette. Yeah. Boy, you guys were great. That's all I can say. That, yeah, was, a, that was a great case. That was awesome. And that was a really great discussion. Fantastic discussion. I have a lot to reflect on personally. Like, <laughs> talk about so much. You do the schema, right? <laughs> the schema for infantile, whatever. <laughs> well, on that note, guys, do you have anything you want to I think we'll just with? close out with this because this is a, we'll, we'll close out the high. How about that? Sounds great. <laughs> so thanks to Jordan guy, and Kate for coming on uh, and Brenda bringing us our first Pete's case. You guys did great. I mean, set the record for first time mentioning the diagnosis in the first aliquot. So congrats. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Kind of fun. Thanks so much. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.